I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. And uh, another episode, we're getting ready for it. Are you ready, bud? I am so ready. So now sometimes we're graced with some information from inside that spook alley you call a head. <laughs> mostly it's, sometimes, it, mostly yeah. it's rooted in facts and science and all that stuff that you base I your try. degree on. Oh. So what did you bring for us today? Well, it's just kind of an interesting study came out uh, recently that talked about the relationship between alcohol and depression. Mm. So we all kind of know that alcohol is a depressant and people can be depressed. You know what? You say that we all mm. know. Yeah. But I bet majority of the people out yeah. there do not know that alcohol is a depressant. You're probably right. You know, and, That's and, true. And, and, and most people probably think, much like I did, is if I'm depressed, a little alcohol is going to make me happy. Yeah, actually, I mean, off topic, sort of. I had a conversation with a college freshman uh, this morning who she's been binge drinking, you know, on the weekends and is uh, kind of was a little confused about why she was unhappy. So, you know, you want to talk about binge drinking, uh, you know, I mean, for the, you know, the years that I was in my active addiction, I'd have good months, I've had bad months, I'd have good years, I've had bad years. And, you know, I would always find myself taking this test and answering these questions. And I was a classic binge drinker for the majority of my, uh, like, alcoholic life. I was a binge drinker. I mean, I think you can't be an alcoholic and not binge drink. But I was I was one of those guys that when I first started like like I would kick off on a Thursday yeah and go until Sunday and then I was usually pretty good Monday Tuesday Wednesday and then mm-hmm. here comes little Friday let's go which yeah. is Thursday well people would be surprised if you I can't remember it off the top of my head but if you Google how many drinks has been drink it's like four drinks in one an, sitting in one sitting or and something then like if that, it's more than which once is or two times a almost week almost every weekend for anybody that drinks well because in my mind I was like who's writing these tests who yeah. sits down and has one drink. What is? Why would you have one drink? Well, when but that's well, my alcoholic time, brain. You yeah, because you're drinking to get drunk. Yeah, I was right? drinking for the euphoria yeah. feeling. And, and you some know, people drink because they like the taste of the wine, not yeah. because they want to get drunk. But here's the other thing, like or the beer or whatever. Wine, acquired taste. Beer, an acquired taste. Right. I'm, I'm very rarely will you find somebody just right out of the gate taste some wine and go, oh yeah, that's good. No, I think most people, the first time they drink, they're like, this can't be good for me. Yeah. This tastes horrible. And then they do it again. Yeah. And, then, and then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the effect. it's, a, it's a learned response. Right, right. Yeah. It's the effect. Well, it is a depressant. It's depressing to your brain and to your mood. Uh, not always the first or second or third drink, but that's the physiological effect it has on you. And 
if you're struggling with your mood already, drinking's a bad idea. But here's here's what the study is. It breaks it down by gender. Okay. And so I'm going to quiz you. Uh, do you think that uh, men or women uh, drink and then experience depression more or are depressed and then decide to drink more? Like there's a gender difference. Which one's which? Guys. Let's go with guys. What do you think? They Are they likely to feel kind of depressed and then want to go drink or drink and then feel depressed? I think for me... Uh, I was depressed, and so I would drink to try to get me out of the depression. Okay. Well, that is the gender difference. You're right. Men uh, in this study tend to feel depressed and then want to drink heavily. As an escape? Or, yeah, yeah, as an escape. Like, I don't like how I'm feeling, so that's going to be my solution. Whereas women, often, it's it's in the reverse, according to this study, that uh, they might be out drinking and then later feel the depression. I mean, I've been to a ton of parties in my life, and normally, and, and I'm not, you know, but the, uh, females will get drunk, and then it's just an emotional avalanche. Right. Out loud. You know what yep. I mean? It's just yep. like, they've been holding this up, they get a few cocktails, and it's like, okay, I'm going to let it all out. And then yeah. you find the girl crying in the corner, and, uh, uh, and yeah. you're like, oh, drinking's not a good thing for you. No, no, definitely We've all seen her. But um, I had sort of a snarky response to this uh, research article. From? Just because in the end, what's the difference between the two? Well, it's the chicken and the egg. Or the There's egg no the difference. In the, the end, you're drunk and depressed. That's, yeah. that's basically how it is. So I, I thought it was kind of funny. I mean, sometimes science and research can be a little bit funny. It, it's interesting, I guess. And it's interesting that your experience also aligns with what the research was saying about men versus women in, in your experience. But in the end, since alcohol is a physiological depressant, which t- tends to depress your mood, um, in the end, people who drink a lot uh, also experience a lot more depression. But that's one of the things that, um, you know, people go, what's – so I saw, I saw a guy at the gym this morning. And he's like, you know, he goes, how long have you been sober now? And I go, four years. And he goes, is it tough? And I go, what? And he goes, the not drinking part. And I go, you know, that part really isn't that hard. That one's pretty easy. He goes, well, then what's the hard part? And I go – Dealing with my emotions, dealing mm-hmm. with problems, and and you know real life, and you know that's what most people deal with. But I don't have that tool that other people have. Like after a long day where people are are you know everybody's coming at you nine ways, you go home and you go, I just want to have a cocktail and sit on the couch and and, and decompress. Yeah, I don't have that option. No, but I mean now you're talking about just uh, addictive behaviors in general because yeah. it's not like everyone else has it figured out on how to deal with their problems and you didn't. The reality is the DOC, right? What is a person's DOC? Uh, we, it's easy to identify people who have an opiate addiction or alcoholism or they're smoking weed every night, that kind of thing. But what about the person that's been to swig three times today mm-hmm. or they're out, you know, overeating or, you know, they're, you know, staying Obsessing up over two football or games three a.m. Yeah. They know or every player in the NFL and all their stats. Pornography. Or pornography or Netflix or video games. You know, so people's life is hard. Life is a struggle. I just had this conversation with my daughter on the way down here because okay. things aren't going her way in a certain aspect of her life. And she got dealt some bad cards. Mm. And, and, I, and, and, and I, it broke my heart because as a dad, I want to go in there and fix it. Sure. But this isn't something that a dad can go in there and fix. And my best advice was sometimes life sucks. Mm-hmm. 
And well, it's hard. Life is hard, but yeah. that's where resilience is built. I told especially her, especially when you're growing up. Good and job. that's what I told her. I said, I said, here's the one thing, honey, is uh, you got the Scott gene. And she goes, well, what does that mean? I'm going to get love handles? And I go, no. <laughs> it, it means that we don't give up. She is your kid, huh? I says, it means we don't give up. Yeah. And, and, and then I, I had this conversation with her. I go, honey, look, it would have been real easy when I got in the accident and I lost the job and I did that just to, just to go away. Throw in the towel. But that's not what we do. Yeah. We fight. We come back stronger and better. And I said, so if this doesn't work out this year, that's okay. That just means you've got a goal for next year. And you can put your mind to it. And I guarantee if you do that, you can do it. And she's like, okay. But she still wasn't like buying into it completely because it's just tough. Well, she's a kid. And yeah. it's hard. But that's the right attitude to model to her. And it's really the only solution if you want something. If you're not on the team, there's a way to get on the team. Yeah. And that's to practice harder. And if you're not sober, there's a way to get sober, and that's to do the work. And you have to do it, and you have to show up, and you are the one that needs to do the work. And that's just what it's all about, man. Well, I like what you said because about you said uh, it's hard to you know, you have to deal with your emotions now, mm-hmm. whereas alcohol was your escape in the past, right? One hundred percent. That's why research shows that people who, in addition to just not, in addition to sobriety, just not drinking. They find other ways to have therapy and learn skills. So people are different and the type of therapy you choose is different uh, and hopefully is a good fit for you. But whatever you choose to do, you need to find something where you're getting help, support. And I like to just think of it as training, you know. So a lot of people, uh, it's more on the physical and they, they need to work out and do the meditation and all that kind of stuff. For other people, it might be very much about deep-rooted emotional psychological things. Lots of people who struggle with addiction have had trauma that's never really been uh, dealt with when Addressed they were growing or up. Processed. Yeah. So, so you do need to learn skills uh, to replace the addiction, the DOC. And I think that right there is the difference between being sober and being in recovery. Right. I agree. And being in recovery means you're constantly working you're for a better version yeah. of you. Yeah. The person I was four years ago is not the person sitting here before you today. And the person that's going to be here next week is not going to be the same person that was here today. I mean, you're always evolving. Yeah. You're always changing. Yeah, I agree. That's the goal. That's right? the goal. And, and once again, it goes back to uh, we've had people on the podcast. You know, life's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Mm-hmm. And we're all just on this journey and we're all doing the best we can. We need a little more empathy. We need a little more love. We need a little more understanding. And if we can do that, I think we'll be better people for it in the end. Well, I, I think that the folks that come on our show are helping other people do that because they're, they're sharing their stories and that models something to somebody that hopefully is inspiring to them. And that brings us to our guest today. His name is Cade Cooper. How are you? I'm good. And uh, you heard us talk a little bit. You've never really listened to the podcast. Are you ready for this? Sure. I heard a little bit. I, I listened to a little bit. and with, I got a two-day time window. Oh, did you? myself. Yeah, and and so you crammed he for did, this task. He did his homework. I probably didn't cram a lot. I'm, I'm overly <laughs> confident. That's my problem. So, Do you think your overly confident uh, affected you in your addiction? You bet. I talk with my therapist all the time, right? And I'm like, when we started, like I had no self-worth. I think you did a little too good of a job because now I have grandiosity and I, I'm delusional, right? So we're, we're constantly trying to bring me back down. So he's, he's got his work cut out. We're going to find out where the story of Cade Cooper begins. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. 
Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Cade Cooper. Uh, he's 40 years young. He's been sober for three and a half years, and uh, we're going to find out more about that in just a second. But where does the story of Cade Cooper begin? Well, I was I was born in Fillmore, mm-hmm. first territorial capital. You know, I... I tell my mom I, I I was conceived in the hot pots, right? That little place outside in Meadow. She disputes the story, and she's certainly not going to appreciate me sharing that here. But yeah. it makes sense. No, <laughs> how does it make sense? I, just with me and who I am. You, you get to know me, you'll be like, yeah, conceived in the hot pots. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a bad bumper sticker. But yeah, okay. right. I'm the middle of five boys, so there were there were five boys in my family, and mm-hmm. um, you know my parents they're very active in the, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints and raised that way, and and none of them ever used it all. And you know, growing up, it was it was a good childhood, right? Like I don't have a lot of. Uh, pronounced trauma as far as that goes like mine can be more into toxic perfectionism and different things like that but you know which in itself are still traumas sure yeah yeah but i think most people when they think of a trauma they think of you know ghastly things happening but yeah probably more so than others or is that kind of trauma wouldn't you think yeah definitely how we perceive the world and then the effect that has on us uh perfectionism can be actually quite detrimental to a person growing up yeah and I think a byproduct of a hyper-religious household, right? So despite my parents' best intentions, you know, you get in trouble. Did you do it? Obviously, you always say no. Promise to Heavenly Father? Yes, because I'm more scared of you right now than Heavenly Father. And then in my mind, Heavenly Father, you know, we're in trouble <laughs> Then here, later right? it seems Yeah, in. like You're the next here. bad thing that happens, oh, that's why that happened, because I lied to Heavenly Father. So, yeah. you know, th- there was there was certainly some of that. So, you know, but I, I think, you know, I've, I've been in therapy for a long time and can talk about that. And I'm a huge advocate of therapy as, as well as recovery programs. But when I was seven years old, my dad had this back massager. My brothers, I think, were nine and ten. And so they brought it in and they're like, put it on your groin, right? And so I had an orgasm at seven years old. And I, I no sexual thoughts. I wasn't able to ejaculate, but I got heavily addicted to that thing. And so it was just, you know, on and on and on. And, you know, from talking with a lot of therapists and stuff, what I can gather is it was similar to being sexually abused, but there was really no abuser, right? Because they're they're nine and 10 years old. And so there's definitely a pregenetic disposition in my family for addiction. And so it just kind of activated that gene. Yeah. Sexual, uh, sexual experiences, before you are a cognitively sexually aware person uh, can be extremely confusing. And because of the effect that they have neurologically, it's not dissimilar to taking sort of an opiate drug and how that happens. So you, you learn to kind of become reliant on that in order to feel good. And especially at such a young age, seven, you know, you're a prepubescent uh, person, uh, it doesn't have quite the same connotation. And if you don't feel acted upon, if you didn't feel like somebody was aggressively doing it to you, then it's it's easier, I think, in a way to feel like reliant on it. I would assume, however, 
there was a level of privacy and embarrassment with this. You probably didn't want to tell people. So that can be, is that right? You're, you're nodding. Well, to an extent, uh, to an extent. I, I, um, you know, I think it got passed around within the high school as well. So okay. but I didn't want to get caught and I did you, get caught. My parents did catch yeah. me. So there, there was this understanding that it probably wasn't right what I was doing. There you go. And so that creates this internal sort of conflict for a person like, well, this feels good to me. Uh, you know, it's, it's a nice way to unwind. That's probably not how you thought of it as a kid. Um, it, it's something I like to do, yet I kind of know it's not right. I probably shouldn't tell everybody. I don't want my mom and dad to know. And so you start to create this, um, for lack of a better t- term, low self-esteem where you feel like I don't really feel good about myself. I'm doing something that makes me feel good, but I, I don't fully feel good about it. So that's one thing, if you're an old guy like me, to feel that way about something you're doing, it's a very different situation if your sense of identity is developing at that same time. It becomes part of how you think and feel about yourself. You have a conflict about who you feel like you are. So, so I, that can be tough. So if I understand this, this started at a young age and it kept going through high school? Well, yeah, I think, you know, I, I around 9 or 10, I think I, I kind of had stopped it. So it was, it was probably a couple years, right? And I think around... 11 pornography was introduced right and so at that point masturbation stuff was taken over you know and it was it was whenever i had free time right at that point it was hey if this feels good i want more and more and more and why doesn't anyone else want more so it had already kind of kicked in so you know i was i was big into sports i was playing basketball and i i was like it and i was i was freshman of the year on my team and that 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 summer, like I just fell into the back of the rotation on on the basketball team, and like I didn't understand all of it. And I also got involved with this girl and started, you know, messing around with the, the, the sexual stuff. And I just, you know, for some reason, I just decided I don't want to be a good kid anymore. For I, I'm not sure what that meant, right? And so one day I went and talked to a kid and got a cigarette, and none of me or any of my friends had ever used. And we all went up, and I took a drag, and immediately it was like I'm going to get drunk and high. And so, so I uh, instantaneously after having that first drag of a cigarette, you next jump to I'm going to get drunk and high. Yep. To, and to me, it was kind of the all or nothing thinking, right? Like I've already went here, I might as well go here and here, right? And like there was so much curiosity attached with it. So I think I think it was homecoming my sophomore year. I it was the first time I got drunk and high at the same time, right? And within six months, you know, my friends gravitated at first. Within six months, I had a new group of friends. And, you know, they're still, they're still good friends, but throughout high school, it was constant, right? I maintained a 2.0 so that I could play basketball and that was it. But I, I did not show up. And, and Fillmore was interesting with drugs, right? Because it would go dry for quite a while back then. There's no cell phones. And so we're driving Main Street back and forth, just like fiending for that guy to come in and hitting him up on his pager. Because when I'd run out of my marijuana, I didn't know what to do, right? And mm-hmm. so I was high whenever I could. Wow. I, you know, first, the way you speak and so confident and so unabashed by, you know, your, your behavior I, is very refreshing. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, and, 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 thank you. and thank you for doing that. But, uh, so you would go through periods with drugs, without drugs, and it never seemed like that you were fiending too bad that you, 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 I was fiending hard, right? I just couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I drank, I did all drugs. I, find cough syrup that had been half drinking that was six years old and I'd slam it whenever I could, right? I Robitussin. So I, I did everything. I think I took 18 hits of acid when it came to us within like three weeks. So Whoa. I, you know, <laughs> it, it was everything. Like the, the only drug I didn't mess around with because it didn't come down there was heroin, but just about everything else. Interesting. 
that you bring up the all or nothing and you mentioned earlier about the perfectionism is, you know, it's it's interesting how we are different as people. People have different personality traits at sort of a basic level and our personality does in many ways guide the decisions, the interests, all the things that we do. And so rigid thinking, perfectionistic thinking becomes black and white, all or nothing thinking. So it's interesting that you kind of made a decision. You're like, well, I, I took the drag on the cigarette, which between all of us is really not a big thing. Somebody takes a drag on a cigarette, it's a small thing. But in your mind, it was like, I'm all the way over to the other side. So I'm going to go all in. And so I'm going to use everything I can, anything I can find, which in Fillmore back in the day must have been a little bit of a challenge to find the stuff you could use. But you were all in on that. How about the group of friends that you left, did they ever try to pull you back? I, I think to the not other a side? lot, right? Like they, so, some didn't like it at all. Some, some were maybe social drinkers, right? So we, we still maintained a friendship, but like, okay. drug use was bad down there, right? They, and in small towns, people get a reputation pretty quick. Oh yeah, the, the, the cops were, you know, one day came to my parents and you know. The, the, I think they're like he's uh, doing coke and, and soliciting prostitution. Well, that, I like that at the time. I'm like, they think I'm a pimp. Like, okay, like let's run with this. But I remember them coming and trying to take me in, and I, you know, I'm like, I have no idea drugs are in this town. Like, I have my suspicions, right? Because my brother had just got arrested, right? And they're trying to get me to talk on them. But it, but it was it was fascinating because everyone knew everyone. My my late father was a two time county commissioner, and, and he later was voted commissioner of the year in the state of Utah, and then elected official in the state of Utah out of the governor and everyone, right? So he's he's very well known. So it was it was very tough for them, and I didn't really fear law enforcement or anything. I just I feared my parents, right? So I, you know, as I work w- with kids, it's like you. You may think it's fun. Well, if I look back, I, it was horrible. You know, I was constantly running. We were up in the mountains. That's where we would get high, right? And for me, the moment I would hear like – they always made fun of me because I'd hear a car and I was just out, right? I was <laughs> 500 yards up in the mountains because – you know, and I did get caught. We got caught a few times. But it, it, it was not fun even when I was thinking it was fun then. In retrospect, I had a lot of anxiety. So if you did get caught, what was the repercussions from your family? <laughs> Well, my father, you know, I always say I'm my dad without therapy, right? Bless his heart. He was he was a passionate guy. He would freak out and lose it, right? And, and it just hurt my mom. And, and now that I understand it really hurt my father too, but they had no idea how to deal with this, right? My two older brothers didn't have these issues. And so my, my second brother started to have these issues in college at the same time. So – you know, there were people. My dad was a branch president out at the local jail, right? And the joke was, "Hey, Johnny, good thing that you're the branch president, so when your boys are out in jail, you can visit them, right?" So, uh-huh. <laughs> so it was it, it, it was interesting. But you know, I would get grounded, but it really didn't matter, brother, because I would sneak out, like because they. My, my parents were strict with me, and they raised each one of us different, right? I'm the middle child, so I have the middle child syndrome, right? But it was it was hard on them. I have two kids now, and and. I don't know what I did, but they're pretty easy. Granted, they're 10 and 13, right? But but for me, it's just I feel bad. Right? I put them through hell. But you didn't think that at the time. No. So there, there's not a ton of – I worked through the, the shame and stuff, right? You know, the whole guilt, shame adage, guilt, I did something wrong, I feel bad, and shame, I did something wrong, there's something wrong with me. Like, Did you feel – a lot of times middle kids feel like they have to sort of set themselves apart, you know, like – like the older ones are getting sort of the attention and the younger ones are getting a different kind of attention. And so sometimes the middle child syndrome, like you mentioned, is sort of feeling lost and like I've got to differentiate myself 
from everybody else? I probably subconsciously. Like I understand some of the psychology of that now. I don't. I don't know that I understood what I was doing. Yeah, at I the don't time. think it would have been a con. It's not. But a yes, conscious but thing yes, for, for sure, for sure. Right. I was trying to. For- I was the one with the temper. Right. I was the one that you wanted to piss off. Right. And five boys and a father that just. We just piss each other off. That's what we do. You know what I mean? It was a pastime. So, yeah. I, I mean, I still do it. Like my dad, I used to miss him. Now I miss pissing him off. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in high school. You're running and gunning. You're taking everything possible. You'll go through dry spells. At the same time, are you still with pornography or have oh, yeah. the drugs taken oh, yeah. over? No, 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 no. Pornography is straight up there. You know, as I talk now, I, I probably consider myself a hardcore drug addict who, who would use pornography. You know what I mean? But no, it was – it was very much pronounced within it the entire time. So the whole time, if I had any free time, right, with drugs, it was, you know, my, my nighttime routine was wait till my parents fell asleep, go sneak downstairs, hope they didn't bust me, you know, go do drugs, then go in, masturbate, go up and create a concoction of, you know, the weirdest food ever and fall asleep. And that was my nighttime ritual throughout every night of high school. Wow. So when does it start to become, I mean, it, it sounds like a problem, but in your own head, when does it start to become a problem? Well, you know, I, I wanted to go on a mission, right? And, and part of it was I, I felt like it was my way out and I had, you know. Oh, wait, wait a second. After all of this high school, you, you decided you wanted well, to go on a mission? Well, all the time through, when I, you know, no, it, it, all the time I was using it, I'd still say it. We'd be all camping and stuff and I'd be like, I'm going on a mission. And people would make fun of me. And my friends, you know, they still wanted it. But you shut your mouth. He's going on a mission. You know what I mean? So let me ask you this. Was the mission? your um, escape class? It was my escape. You know what I mean? So it was like, hey, look, I'm going to do all this stuff, but then I'm going to go on a mission and I'm going to leave this all behind me. It was my escape and in a way, I guess it would have been amends to my parents. Those were the two things because there were certain things I'd experienced with my faith that I'd seen that I couldn't account for. I wouldn't say what I had a testimony, right? But I think that was it, right? It was... It was a safe way out. It was your savior. Yep. The mission was going to be did, your savior. Did your me. older brothers go on? My missions? oldest did. My second did not. Okay. And so you're getting ready to go on a mission, and did you actually go? I did. Yeah, I served in Hawaii. So I, I served two years. And, you know, because I'd had so many issues before I served, I, I, I worked hard. And, you know, for me, God is a huge part of my story. And, and there were just seeds planted there that I never could answer for. I saw his hand in my life in different ways, forms. And, you know, so I was good. And the mission was fantastic for me out there. So Were you kind of all or nothing about the mission sure, too, like sure. all in? I mean, they, I I think it's good they call 19-year-olds because there's this overactive guilt complex that I still had out there, right? Like I was I was incredibly obedient, but like I was terrified of God. If I mess up here, I'm going to mess up everyone's chance and my chance too. So there was some of that that was still parlaying into that very heavily. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how our personalities really drive our experiences in life. And I I would have been surprised if you'd said you were sort of am, ambiguous about what you were doing. Like I would have assumed, yep, when you're there, you're all in. Yep. All in on drugs, all in on God, all in. Well, you're listening to uh, Project Recovery, and this is the story of Cade Cooper. We're going to find out more in just a few seconds. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolier. Our guest today is Cade Cooper. He's on a two-year mission in Hawaii, and uh, your all-or-nothing mentality is really kicking in. And uh, you said you were a good missionary. Yep, I was. So I And I stayed clean for a while, so I'll, I'll speed up here a little bit. So I got into selling pest control, selling door-to-door, right? I met a gal. I got married. 
eventually I started my own business out in Houston, Texas. Okay, wait. Before we get to that, when you got back from your mission, did you go back to your old ways? Not really. You know, it was like every five or six months, though, I would have small relapses, whether it was it was faking a back injury to, you know, get some pain medication or if I ever got prescribed Lortab. So it it was – I was still in addiction. I, I wasn't looking at pornography. About I think two 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 years in, I started back up with pornography, and then as soon as I got married, I had stopped that. But it was there was some unmanageability, but but not nearly to where it was before. But you start a pest control company, and you find yourself living in Texas. Yeah, and, and you know the guys that were selling for me in this door to door mall, right? They were all my friends. So that, at that time, I was extremely codependent, right? So you know, m- my poor ex, like I went from the guy that was totally in love and I, I still was but like when you have 20 20 year olds and you're codependent like your day's only as good as the worst day of selling and i swear none of them had a good day the same time right so i was working morning till night well one night i i got a call that my dad was really sick and you know today is 10 years that he passed oh, i'm so sorry i appreciate it and you know i've i've processed it now so it, it doesn't necessarily bring so much in fact he bothers me a lot now i and sometimes it's like stay out of my business like i've got this so <laughs> I, I know he's there, but it, it was catastrophic, man. This, this was my hero. He was he was everything to me, and it just it, it shattered me. And I remember I remember getting that call right, and like so it, it, he was sick for three years, and uh, he was in and out of hospitals, um, and he had kidney failure. They didn't catch it till then, right? So during this time, we're building this business up. We started to do millions of dollars in revenue. So I'm like, I'm going to move home and see my dad. Well, in the meantime, I had gotten prescribed Xanax different times. I went through full benzoyl withdrawal for three days and about died over that. Mm. But I, I, I had kind of just been using different sleep medications and, and not going full in. So we moved back and, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, I want my kids and we think he's going to get, we think he's going to get a kidney. And I get a call from my little brother and it said, dad has a, has a year to live at the most. And so me and all five of my brothers, we went home and, you know, he passed away within a month and thank God I was clean at that time. Right. And I, and I felt everything there. And, you know, my dad left me with, with no, I haven't, I knew he went on, right. There were just certain experiences that were so pronounced, but you know, when you lose someone, I think, you know, through the stages of grief and just, you're okay at first. And you're so busy with the funeral and stuff that I was, I was okay. Right. But after he went, I went into a deep, deep depression. And, you know, at that point I, I meet with the doctor and they're like, let's try, you know, SSRI. So I tried antidepressants and it did not help me at all. So one day I met with this doctor and he's like, you just scream ADD. And he's like, let's, let's try Adderall. And I'm like, I'm an, I have addicted tendencies. So anyway, I got on this drug and the first time I took it, I'm, I'm at a family reunion and I don't know half the people. And I just, I felt like God, like I felt, is this how everyone feels? And I was talking and sharing everything and this and that. So I didn't know much about this drug. We moved back out to Texas. All I figure out is, hey, if you don't eat a lot, it tends to work better. So I went from 190 to 145 pounds, right? Uh-huh. And I'm thinking I'm looking good. And everyone at first is like, you're looking good because I'm working out because he's like run 40 minutes in the morning to help stimulate your natural dopamine production. Well, one night I think I'm dying because I start to get these little clicks in my hands and feet. And it reminds me of my dad when he's dying. And so I go into a full-blown panic attack. And so they take me into the hospital and I'm like, I'm going to die. And, you know, they're waiting for the social worker to get there, see if I'm suicidal. And they're asking me symptoms and my brain is creating the symptoms as they're coming. Can you walk? I couldn't walk. Finally, they put me under, right? So the next day I wake up and something's shifting in my brain. Something's different. I had not even looked at pornography my whole marriage that night. And I don't feel any stress anymore. So I go by a strip club 
I don't go in, but I, you know, I want to, um, you know, I come home the next day, things are just off. And, and a short story, I got put into a manic episode. And so I, you know, and I'm, I'm not bipolar, but drugs do that. The best way I can describe mania is you, you lose the ability to choose things. So I won't go into everything that happened, but I made certain decisions because anything that looked pre- pleasurable, I did. It cost me my business. I lost a million-dollar business. You know, it put my marriage on the rocks. And uh, I was so upset because the God I was taught to believe in, you couldn't – these things couldn't happen. You couldn't be tested above that. So I went into a three-year spiral of just – you know, devastating use at different times, right? And it caused this poor friction with my wife. So I went to a rehab here out at the Haven, you know, lost the business. Eventually, I end up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, I relapse again, have another big one. I go, this is a third rehab there. And this is when I really started to learn recovery. But I had a dream one night. And I had a little girl that was seven years old at the time. And uh, I'm on a big skyscraper. Um, and I'm by myself. And I'm getting ready to go get with my dealer, right? And I see her with my family. And I watch, and she walks off to the edge, and I see her fall off. And so I rush down to the bottom to try and save her life, and she's, she's gone. And she's not all disfigured. She just has a little smile on her face. And I woke up just in tears. And it's like, God, don't you take my daughter, right? And I, I just – I remember sobbing, and, and the strong impression came i'm not going to take her but if you don't wake up if you don't learn to be a little man your daughter is going to suffer and so that is when i really started to change i started my recovery program i started these different things right and so i started to grow and for me as you work in recovery and I, i've been in therapy for five years and my therapist in louisiana is one of the best i've ever i've ever met and i've talked to a lot my relapses would get shorter in duration because they're more painful because I, I couldn't blame anyone for them and I was growing with God. So eventually, the, you know, the last time I, I used, I was I was at this Huntington Beach LDS singles thing out in, out in California. Most single LDS people know who I am. In fact, most single people out here in Utah because of the way I am and I don't shut up and whatever. So. Oh, you don't? No, no. Yeah. They're like, you want to come on? I'm like, yes, not nervous at all. Not nervous at all. So I take one marijuana gummy. I end up taking 19. And I'm out of my mind because it wouldn't numb me. It would not numb me. And like I remember driving around and all I can see is, is God showing me how much he loved me. And it was frustrating me. And I'm like, I get you love me at this time. Please just let me not feel. And the impression I got was this is not why my son died. This is not your path. I will no longer allow you to enjoy this. So I called my sponsor and I'm like, I I used. And he's like, I know. Why didn't you call me? I'm like, why do you think I called you? Tell me not to use. And he's like, Cade, maybe you need to get drunk and hit and kill a family and then go to prison. And then maybe when you do that, like I'll come and visit you. And at that point, you know, maybe you'll grow up and you can get help and I'll still help you. And then he hung up the phone. And it was one of the nicest things anyone ever said to me. Because I have driven that way a hundred times, thousands of times, right, with my kids. It was saying I don't care about Casey's kids. I don't care about Matt's kids. I don't care about anyone but myself. And that's what I was doing every time I got under the wheel, right? And so things started to shift and I really started to put you know, time in. And from that point on, I've been clean. Wow. I mean – Well, he said what you needed to hear. Yeah. Why do you think that – why did that – because I'm guessing – You'd heard other messages at other points in your life that were probably the same message, just delivered a different way. Why did that touch you? That you day? know, I, I I think it was coming. Yeah, I think it was coming. I think you know we change behavior when the pain of persisting in the pay behavior is is less than the pain of changing. And I think I just I, I was tired. I, I was sick of it, and I just you know 
I, I, I've been so open with, with my stuff, you know, on Facebook. Uh, you know, when I first got divorced, right, I go on this, this Lake Pal trip and like I, I'm on a boat with a bunch of beautiful women bikinis and they're playing hip hop. And I'm like, this is like an MTV music video. And I'm like, man, I didn't think I'd be here five years ago, but I'm glad I am. And so I posted this stuff online and I started getting messages from my buddies saying, man, we want to get divorced. I'm like, why would you want to get divorced? So they're like, look at your Facebook page, Cade. And I started to realize, man, I need to be careful what I convey on social media because comparison is flawed and fundamentally inaccurate because we really don't know what people are going through. And in nowhere is that more amplified than social media. And so God hit me very early on. You need to own your truth. So I think my first big post was, hey, you want to know the realities of divorce? You try telling your little seven-year-old you're leaving. And that was the most painful experience of my life. And have her bawling and just saying, sorry, sweetie, like – I don't know what to tell you, but I'll, I'll try to be there for you and going through this stuff. And so I started posting all this stuff. A while back, I'm wondering what to do, right? I've gotten clean. I've met with my therapist, and I wanted to get my degree and become become a therapist. And he's like, well, Kate, I can just teach you everything I know because I own a pest control business, don't have enough time. So I've started meeting him every, you know, every week for three years now, and I've learned a ton about it. Um, I had met with a, a big rehab facility. They're, they're famous out here. They treat a very wealthy clientele, and I ended up meeting with the leading interventionalist. I've done some of them. I ended up meeting with the, the, the leading uh, the manager out there, and they're like, you're you're uh, you know you're good for our clientele because you don't get starstruck. I'm like, well, that's because I think I'm better than them anyway. So perfect. Right? <laughs> and they're like, you you can do you know interventions. These people pay sometimes up to a hundred thousand dollars per intervention because it's not nothing to them. Or you know you can do frontline work where you go and live with them after and kick out the enablers. And one day my buddy hit me up and said, why don't you do your own podcast and everything lost relevance. And so the past six months, I've put a lot of time, money and effort into a YouTube channel called Getting Your Life Back with Cade Cooper. It's getting without a G. And, you know, to me, it's it's not just recovery based. It's it's just, you know, trying to throw out this is how I healed, you know, and I'm an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, but not everyone is. And some of my friends hate the church and that's fine. I still like them. So I've I've brought on different people to share stuff. And in the process I've had topics on codependency. I think my last one was you're not a stud, you're manipulating her trauma for your gratification. You know, so yeah. it it's it's been it's been interesting, but it's it's certainly been there. But for me it's it's the hardest thing I've done. But but much like what you're doing, Casey, it's been my way to kind of give back because I do have a very strong presence within the single scene out here. And, you know, it's just when you get to where I am, everything is beautiful now. And Amen. I, I, you know, I, I love my life and these things are unfolding. I'm like, is this possible? I used to sit in church and someone's like, oh, I'm grateful for my trials. And I'm like – if they say that again, I'm going to take my boots off. And I'm going to chuck them at the pulpit, and like I'm going to knock someone out because that's that's BS, right? And like they they don't know the pain I am, but through working with people and and working in recovery and just trauma in general with different people, I've realized, hey, there are certain situations I could not have helped that person if I hadn't went through that or if I hadn't made that bad decision that I made, and it all played into something. And in the end, you know. My whole question with God the whole time was you took everything from me, right? And that's what drove my using. I lost my business. I've lost everything, and, and it's all your fault. And as long as I could pin it on him, there was no confliction when I used, which was very dangerous for me, right? Because then the drugs worked very well. Well, I think that, you know, to sum everything up, when I stopped asking why me and just why, like why, God, why did you do this? And the answer was you're an addict, and you're just – 
getting millions of dollars. Well, Cade, when you get success, you tend to kind of push me away. And also, you have an instant accessibility to pleasure in all types of forms. So I stepped in to save you. And in the process, I watched you badger me and scream at me and hurt people. And I let you do it because I love you. Wow. It's that perspective change, isn't it? And now what do you think about people when they say, I'm grateful for my trials? I love it. I love it, yeah. man. Because our trials can teach us things. And it's not until we learn from our trials that when somebody says that, it takes on that whole other meaning. You know, there was a shift for me. I, you know, when I go through stuff now, I don't ask God to take it away anymore because I, I understand it's just help me learn the lesson as quick as I can. So I don't have to experience this anymore, but I'm, I'm grateful to feel today. My life is a different kind of hard, right? But I don't think it will ever be as hard as it was because I have a knowledge of, of who runs the show of God. So no matter what, I have this perspective that, hey, I always want to know how things are going to work out with who and where and when. And I rarely get that information, but I always know it's going to work out. Well, resistance promotes growth. And that's how we really grow. And yeah. it sounds like you've done a lot of growing. And now Short you, trials are better, though. I will agree with you I, on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, sometimes I pray for them. I mean, that was stupid. Like, my therapist always, you know, Cade, like, I'd like to be God with your prayers because he's like, let's, let's give my son whatever he asked for and watch him freak out. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, why, I mean, you've kind of answered this, but what was, was, was it the, the relationship with your daughter that really gave you the strength to? I think so, Casey. And you know, my boy too, you know, I just, I wanted to die. You know, that last rehab, I'm listening to the war stories of these guys that have, you know, been homeless and stuff. And I'm listening to all the women they've slept with and all the drugs they've done. And for me, I was a little upset because, because, you know, I'm married, right? And I'm, I'm a member of the church. So I would go wild, but it wouldn't last for very long. So I remember being jealous of them. I'm like, I want to experience all that. I want to sleep with as many women and do as many drugs. And you know what? If it leaves me homeless, then that's okay. But the only thing that I couldn't do was I had these two little people that needed their dad. And, you know, I'm a single man. And, brother, I, I want to get married at the right time. It's very important to me. But those two taught me about God because they're everything to me. And I just I could not. I could not leave them, and you know my therapist would call them my anchor babies, but but they were, and you know today, they're everything to me. So without them, I would have I would have ended it a long time ago. So you say life's better than you ever could imagine. You still have trials. Oh, you bet, you bet, brother. Start <laughs> start this thing has been tough. I I can't tell you, brother, how many times. You know, obviously, I believe in God. I certainly believe in Satan as well. And and when you know, I I have helped people for a long time, right? I as I post my my reality online, there's so much trauma at my age. Well, you know, if you're single and you're dating at 45, 50 years old. Well, you, we now have 30 more years to accumulate trauma. And and for me, it's rare to find someone that goes through the process to change, right? Because any change initially is very painful. And so I think people start to feel that pain and then they go back into the definition of insanity and let's just do the normal stuff and, and just, you know, expect different results. Well, you know, for me, it's, I, I don't care. I'll, I'll go through whatever, anything I need to as quickly as I can. So, I mean, that's certainly tough. I work in addiction actively with people. I lose people a lot. You know, I, within my recovery programs, I've, I've done interventions. So, yeah, it is. There's there's certainly trials there, but it's not nearly what it was. I don't feel unmanageable, right? I don't feel like, hey, 
things are going to spiral out of control. And for me, you know, people ask me, is it, is it hard not to use? I'm like, no, like, <laughs> you know, but I, I'm very consistent. I, 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 my model is consistency despite circumstance. There's just certain things I do every day. I will call my dailies right that I just do no matter what. And for a guy like me, it's harder to do it when things are going good. You know, because at that point, thanks, God. Thanks for everything. By the way, I got it. I'm going to do the opposite of what you did to get here. But I think for me, you know, it certainly has made things easier. What do you think, Dr. Matt? I want to I want to know one of your your go to dailies like like just just for the listener. I don't expect you to go over it all. But what's what's one thing that you you think anchors you every day? I read the Book of Mormon every day. Okay. So reading that scripture helps inspire you each day? It just, you know, for me, it's a centering, right? Like the, 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 God is is everything to me. So if, if I can wake up and, you know, get in that mind frame that not everything depends upon me the first thing of the day, because if not, it's amazing how many experiences I've had with the divine. Like I don't even think I have faith anymore, but my go-to – thought is, hey, everything depends upon you, and this is here. So I find the quicker I can do that, the more helpful. But, you know, for me at this point, it's I, I need his help, right? I just barely, you know, got got my recommend to be an ordinance worker at the temple. And so for me, it's just, man, like, and this is my thing again. And like I, like I said, I've got friends who aren't members of the church. One of my episodes is for those that hate my religion and then have left. I've got a brother who's gay, so I certainly can understand why people don't like it, and I don't blame them, and, you know, I probably wouldn't either. But for me, it's, it, it you know, it's the center of how I feel. So, you know, but I think in, in our era, right, like, I don't have to compromise my convictions to be compassionate, right, because that's where a big disconnect yeah. is. I couldn't not believe what I believe, and I would be inauthentic and in doing you a disservice if I didn't say that. But at the same time, I can acknowledge, hey, I understand you may not like me, you may not like what I believe, and I'm not offended by that anymore. So, you know, what I'm trying to do with, with you know, with my sphere of influence is let me bring on other people and let me have them share how they healed because the half of you hate me. I, the, 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 there's no – I don't know anyone that's like, Cade's okay. I hate Cade or I love Cade. You know what I mean? And so I <laughs> – All you, or nothing. Yeah. So Black I, or white. I, I've lived out of state a long time, and, and it's, it's just changed, and there's so many different ways to heal. Well, I love it, and I think what you're doing is amazing. Uh, if people want to follow you and find out more uh, about all the great things that you're doing in the world of recovery, where do they find you? So my YouTube channel is Getting Your Life Back with Cade Cooper. It's getting without a G, just getting your life back with Cade Cooper. I stream the same thing to audio. I do it on podcast through Apple, Amazon, and Spotify as well. I mean, I've, I've got a little it, – it's, it's in its early stages, right? It's in its infancy, um, but – yeah, if you want to get on that way, um, you, you know, be glad you don't have to see what I look like because I'm pretentious, right? My skin's Well, that was going to bring me to my next question. When they make the movie of your life, which celebrity do you want to play you? I'm thinking Jason Statham. I, he's, he's got the Statham yeah, you think look. you he can switch the accent enough? I don't know, but it's worth a shot. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, brother. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, I, I like Jason Statham. He's a good you know, dude. I, I, I think A Star is Born came out, and my mad crush became Bradley Cooper for the rest of my life. And that came out while I was in rehab. I did it. Yep. Yeah. So that I, you know, I remember seeing that one, and there was this good-looking gal next to me. I'm gonna mask her out after, but I was in such a sobbing mess afterwards, just just bawling. And she looks over at me, and I think she understood. I was like. You're good looking. <laughs> Not today, Doctor Matt. Your thoughts on Cade Cooper? Wow. 
That's right? my thought on Cade. Cade, I appreciate you, man. Really appreciate you coming on. I love your energy. Um, because of people like you and Casey and others, the stigma of, of addiction, I believe, is going away. Slowly, but it's going away. And I, I appreciate you being willing to, to share your message. Um, an all-or-nothing personality is just exactly that. And when you point it in the right direction, it really gets stuff done. So I hope you'll you'll keep on doing what you're doing. I will, Matt. I certainly appreciate that. Yeah. And I want to say thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL podcast, Casey. Amazing, Kate is. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.